Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. bit frazzled from chasing a small person around the house, but yeah, I'm good. And we are here to talk about recording our most recent podcast with Lee Hollingworth. So that was a really good conversation, I thought. Lee is head of UK retirement at Franklin Templeton. And before that, he had a long career at Hyman's Robertson, the consultancy. So Lee has seen the pensions world from all angles. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Did you? I thought it was fascinating. It was one of those conversations where we almost had to sort of deliberately keep it short because we could have kept on going. I think I had certainly a bunch of questions that I would have liked to ask him. So maybe someone will bring back for series two. There's definitely. definitely lots of things that he can share insight in. And as you say, because he's been on the consultancy side and he's now working at an asset manager, it's good to get his insight as to what his thoughts were of the asset management community when he was on the other side yeah. and whether that's helped him when he's moved across the asset management side. So it was a really fascinating conversation. Yeah. I think what I like most about it is Lee isn't afraid to sort of step back because he's worked in pensions for a long time, but he's still doing that thing of stepping back and asking are we going in the right direction for savers? And I think fundamentally, this is what that conversation's about. Are we moving in the right direction with DC? Are we doing the right thing for members? And what could we be doing better? So we talk a bit about areas where the investment community could better serve DC savers in this conversation, which I thought was really cool. It was great. And there's, there's some answers that we don't actually have at this particular point in time, but the questions themselves are fascinating. So I'm sure as time goes on, you know, we as the asset management community will hopefully come up with answers to those questions. Definitely. Well, we'll jump into that conversation now. Hi, Lee. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really nice to have you here. Hi, Louise. And hi, John. Lee, I wondered if you could just start by telling everyone a bit about yourself. I think you've had such an interesting career and now you're seeing the DC world from a whole new perspective. Well, you're very kind. So let's start where I am now. So Lee Hollingworth, I'm head of UK Retirement at Franklin Templeton. I've been here just over a year now. And it's actually my first job in asset management at the ripe old age that I am today, having spent pretty much my whole career in pension consultancy, and particularly DC consultancy, and probably most notably, or my last shop as a partner at Hyman's Robertson for 13 years, where I created their DC business back in 2008 and was responsible for a great team there over many years. So here I find myself in the wonderful world of asset management. So why did you move into asset management after all those years in consultancy? Yeah, I thought you might ask me that. That's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> but life's about challenges and taking risks, yes. Yeah? So there's no question, albeit calculated risks, obviously, and there's no question that I was up for another challenge having spent most of my career in consulting. And I think at some point as well, there's a frustrated 
product designer in me who wanted to go beyond what I could do in consultancy and actually do stuff, tangible stuff to support the needs that I I saw them out there. And it was kind of like a transition phase, actually. So the core business of Hyman's Robertson's DC business was always, of course, employers and trustees and advising them around their solutions. And about two years before I left Hyman's, we started to pivot that business a wee bit and explore extending the consultancy reach into asset managers and providers and other owners. And that was really interesting. And I worked with a few asset managers. One of those is Franklin Templeton. And I was pontificating, as I do, in terms of the challenges out there in workplace environment and what needs to be done. And they kind of rose to that challenge and said, well, why don't you come and do it for us then, Lee? So that's interesting. And one thing led to another, and we kind of ended up getting together. And I've really enjoyed it, actually. It's been tremendously exciting 12 months in terms of not just departing from consulting but to get to learn asset management but I've gone from a UK-centric actuarial partnership to a global institutional asset manager based in the States and getting to know all that world as well so time has just flown by I have to say over the last 12 months but it's been immensely enjoyable. From the consultancy perspective, I imagine you had some preconceived notions of what asset managers must be like to work for and what sort of things surprise you positively and negatively when you move from one side of the fence to the other? Yeah, absolutely. And I now have shared some of the experiences that you will will be very familiar with. In, I think one of those things is within a consultancy environment, without being detrimental, it's an easier job in a way because you're coming up with solutions, proposing it, and then say, okay, off you go and sort it out. And where you're working for an asset manager and you, you're looking at solutions, and then you've got to go into product build and you've got to get yourself scheduled into that and all the requirements that that comes with, that's been a learning experience and perhaps one I underappreciated before coming into the world of asset management as well. And hey, you look back over the last 12 months as well, and one might argue I could have chosen a better year to go into (laughs) asset management, but it's been going through all those trials and tribulations of what markets have been up to over the last 12 months has been super interesting as well. Just going back to why I've done it as well. So if we just bring the conversation into DC for a moment and thinking about that, it seems to me that active management in DC is on the cusp here where there's no doubt about it if you look back over the last 10 years or 12 years since the advent of auto enrollment and the explosive growth dc investment solutions have been passive by nature relatively simplistic and there's been a focus on cost and that's that's no bad thing necessarily in terms of introducing value for money for customers but i feel that we're on the cusp now where dc has reached a certain scale where asset owners are looking at the solutions that they have and just asking the questions in terms of looking out to eke out performance enhancements or managing risk in a slightly different way that because of their scale that now affords them, they're given opportunities. And I also feel as well that the regulatory shift is happening there as well with a focus away from cost more onto value. That's going to take some time. So we can't just row back 
really quickly from where we've ended up, particularly on the low cost position we end ourselves up. But I, the people I talk to, other asset managers, consultants, asset owners, all kind of share a common belief in that. And it's just working towards that goal. So it's tremendously exciting and two areas where that's particularly ripe for an active manager, I think. Certainly private markets, which is a very topical subject. And a lot of asset owners are thinking about how they work that into their solution and also retirement. And they happen to be two key priorities of mine that I've taken on since coming here. In terms of the role for active management going forward, do you think the market conditions of, say, last year kind of demonstrate what potentially could have been done from an active management side? I'm thinking more about the duration exposure. You know, there's been quite a few articles written recently about the demise of the lifestyling because of the losses that people in the run-up to retirement would have faced because the allocation to fixed income they typically had was all stocks gilts, all stocks credit, maybe a bit of short duration. But what we see in DB space with multi-asset credit funds, absolute term with the onus is on the asset manager to flex the duration exposure. Do you think this might be a catalyst for people to be more willing to consider active management potentially in fixed income? Yeah, definitely. And I think this year coming up is quite exciting in that regard. So fixed income having taken... Wherever you were, incidentally, as a manager, it was tough last year. But this year, there are definitely opportunities within fixed income that give rise to to active management and to add that value. I totally agree. And just on that retirement piece as well, I mean, absolutely. So you've got, it exposed the flaws, not just in necessarily a passive mandate, but the way that the DC schemes are designed So a lot of people will have been de-risking, as you say, and the worst case scenario, which still happens, is people would have been de-risking to, I don't know, the time age of 65, and actually with an assumption they're going to buy an annuity and going into long-dated guilt. And at some point, some people, if they were retiring at that point last year, may have lost 30 40%. (laughs) And that's really tough for investors that were, well, at least their perception was that they were de-risking and they were going into lower forms of investment. Yes, we know it was a one in X period of markets, but nevertheless, it kind of shows the flaws in that. And just to add to that, if I might, so you've got, but it's underlying that as well. You've got two phases still in DC design, if you think about it, they still exist where you've got commonly referred to as an accumulation and a decumulation phase. And a lot of the emphasis has always been on the accumulation phase, quite rightly, because that's where the money is and that's where investors' needs are. And then there's this mystical decumulation journey, but the two don't join up whatsoever. So you can get this crazy situation where, as I've just described, you could have an individual who's being de-risked into guilts at the point of 65, only to then re-risk through the decumulation phase the very next day into equities, which is just nuts. So there's a fundamental dysfunction in the design system of accumulation and decumulation that we need to sort out, I think, and get those talking to each other in a bit more effective way. And maybe it's a bit of a legacy of DB actually, where you start thinking about you're in a pension scheme up to a certain point, and then it gets converted and then DB pension pays your income. And to a lesser extent in DC prior to freedom and choice, where people may be buying an annuity, that's all changed. People's working patterns have changed as well. We have to be cognizant of that, I think. So I guess the obvious next question, and I'm sure you were thinking about this a lot in your previous life, but coming into asset management, does it put you in a position to start to try and address some of those issues and that mismatch, do you think? And and how are you starting to think about solutions? Yeah, 
I hope so. So if, if we take that retirement theme a little bit further, and let me just maybe set the scene a wee bit more because I've jumped into kind of almost solution mode a little bit. So if we, if we just take a step back and think about what the need is at the moment. So there is a, to my mind as well, there's a pressing need to deliver or design solutions for that mass affluent population. So if we were to think about customer segments and categorize them by pot size, I'd be talking about customers, say, between 100K and 500K pot size in retirement. And where are those members mainly going to come from over the next 10, 15 years? They're going to come from the workplace. And these are members that are not ordinarily used to making decisions and navigating complex decision paths. So, I mean, the delivering income from DC pots anyway is often referred to as one of the biggest challenges in finance. Take that for this mass affluent, largely inert population and multiply that by a sum. It's also a global issue too. So it's not confined to the UK. So do you look across other developed DC markets, say the US or Australia, they're still grappling with the same issues. I think in the US, they're perhaps better place to deal with this because they are pretty well served by an advisor community, have been adept at advising clients at the point of retirement. In the UK, I don't think that's going to happen. And I'll explain why. So you're probably aware compliance costs for an individual IFA are extremely high to advise an individual. And you have this kind of capacity issue where you've only got a limited source of IFAs. So I think it's less than 35,000 registered individuals in the UK. You're going to have millions of individuals in the area I've just described who are going to need some help. So you've got a supply and demand issue. And the result, I think, is the advice, which may be the solution for many, is going to be preserved of those who perhaps have pot sizes over half a million. So who is going to serve that? sector of the marketplace and australia is a bit like us to be honest and so they need a mass market solution but it's always proved elusive one of the reasons for that is we've kind of let perfect get in the way of good in a quest for this optimal solution for everybody we have to take all their wealth into account and we have to do some incredible planning perhaps we need to moderate that ambition just a wee bit and no doubt as well. So regulatory constraints are causing risk aversion amongst providers in terms of this advice line and how far they can go and what that means for them. So it's a big issue, but it's a societal problem. So if you look at DC, you've got this population who are owed a great deal of responsibility for being auto enrolled into a pension scheme. They're faced with a double whammy of insufficient pot saving. And that's going to be compounded by poor decisions at retirement unless we do something about that. Now, I'm totally with the PLSA on this, is the way to try and solve primarily the savings, the funding, is through legislation and for higher contributions. So we can't do much about that in the short term, apart from doing some good stuff in terms of engagement stuff. We can sort the retirement issue out, I tend to think. That's the kind of issue I think that's out there, both globally and in the UK. So I see it as a challenge for us, but also for all developed markets out there. Have you seen any countries that have started to address that retirement problem? Yes, but we've mixed success, I would say. So that Australia's got this retirement income covenant that's coming for trustees, which it sounds good. 
but it's really a duty on trustees to think about the design and where those members are heading. Now, if we think about the population we're trying to serve here again, who is largely inert and looking for help, what they, I think, need or want is taking them on a a directive default pathway to get them in the right place. So you kind of set them off on a number of assumptions and try to put them in a decent place. Once you've done that, you allow them to customize, if they wish, what they're doing. And it's kind of very much a kind of do it to the solution rather than, a, okay, here's your pot size and away you go, which kind of feels where we are at the moment. It's either, it's kind of binary. You've either forced your position where you can afford to get access to a quality advisor or you're kind of left to your own devices and it just feels as there's a, there's a huge gap in the middle there. Where do pathways fit into that sort of advice versus you kind of do it yourself? Is pathways are sort of, it's not quite a happy medium, but is it? an attempt at doing that? And how do you see pathways developing as, as time goes on, given there is this massive cohort of people that might not be able to afford the advice that they actually need? Yeah. So pathways are a step in the right direction in setting out clear, asking the customer at least to consider what they're going to do with their pot when they get to retirement or the next five years, etc. But it's kind of two flaws with that. One is the pathway, I think it's free which is design or take an income. That's where probably the most people are going to end up in the short term of their retirement. And aside from then the asset manager has to find a suitable solution for that. And at the moment, it seems like multi-asset is a do-it-all. So put someone in a multi-asset fund and that's going to manage risk, deliver growth, all those good things and protect downside. And in some respects, my concern is you're kind of in a position where you're accepting then what the fund can deliver as opposed to what you need. And so it's a kind of tail wagging the dog. So in answer to your question, John, I think pathways are a step in the right direction, but we perhaps need something a wee bit more. I and mean, maybe just, I mean, I'll get, just to try and provide a bit of color to that, I'll give you an example, if I may. So what, what I think is the next evolution of pathways or trying to serve that mass affluent population is just going back to the customer again as well. So they, they come to a point of retirement and they're facing a complex journey path, decision-making process. And I draw the comparison on it. Someone, imagine this today, right? So you were driving to Devon last night, Louise. Do you know where you're going? But let's say you're going to Devon. You don't really know where that address is, et cetera. You're given a, a large-scale AA roadmap and you just got to get on do it. Right? My worst problem, nightmare. Yeah, it would freak you out, right? No sat-nav, no Google Maps, none of that stuff that's going to do it all for you. I'd be lost. So that's where DC investors are, right, in retirement. Why can't we navigate it for them? So you don't have to accept the decisions that the sat-nav gives you, but you, it gives you a good place to go from. So that's what I'm saying is we put people on that sat-nav, provide a directed pathway, through a series of defaults to put them in a good place. And at the core of that, we start with what they need rather than what they can get. So what they need is an income, right? So for most people, over the point of retirement, they're going to need an income. So based on a, a robust framework, you set them a spending plan. Now, I happen to believe that the PLSA's retirement income standards is a pretty good place to start that, actually. 
And so, as you'll know, they've defined kind of free income standards, a minimal, moderate, and comfortable. So let's say based on someone's pot size, you default them to one of those. And that becomes your spending plan over the course of your retirement. And you set that for the individual. You play it back to them because the components of this actually, and it's not an investment solution isolation. It's not a digital UX in isolation. All two and three of these things must come together to present a cohesive solution to the individual. So you present the solution and you allow them to personalize that if they will. And then you set that and you keep that under review. So it's not something you set at 65 and you leave it. You have to regularly review that at least every year. And if it's not hitting its goal, you recalibrate it, right? And then the idea is to deliver a paycheck to that individual based upon the spending plan that was set for them or tell them why it's not happening in good time and give some advance notice to that. So that's kind of the principle we're kind of working to to here. And I think this is where my consultancy head comes in because I can't help but look at these things from a customer point of view and how do we build something that's going to satisfy their needs? What are their needs? Let's do that. And then we can design the investment product, say, to meet those needs. So having set them a spending plan is another example. I think you then use an investment fund or a series of investment funds that are designed to deliver that spending plan. So this would be multiple funds over different durations that are maturing at different points in the future. Well, when they mature, they're designed to hit that spending plan. Okay, so think of it as like a, not a target date fund, but a target outcome fund. So let's stretch someone over 30-year duration in retirement. We're going to have, let's say, 30 different funds, all maturing every year to deliver the income for the individual. And if they're not, you give them fair warning that it's not going to do that. And so what does that do? That allows you to do a few things, actually. It brings in the benefits of duration investment into this piece. So one of the problems with taking an income for your fund, as we discussed earlier, is you're asking a fund to do all things to all men. So it's looking to manage volatility, it's looking to grow and provide an income. And any short-term volatility in a fund can really hurt the individual, power cost sequencing risks. Whereas if you do it on a duration-based fund, and let's say the first five years of those are allocated to cash form of investment, to so deliver the outcome with a high degree of certainty. Over the longer term, the 30 years allows you to invest in growth assets, particularly equities and maybe even private markets as well. So that mitigates the sequencing risk and can provide some certainty to the individual. So that's an idea, just an example, I think, of how we can we can help individuals set them a, a sat-nav directed pathway and then manage the money according to those goals. Is that almost like going into DB space, these kind of CDI funds where, you know, you invest in credit and you you either invest in individual year funds or bucket funds so that in three years time, you know that that fund's going to mature and it's going to pay out so you can use that to meet the, the DB liabilities. It sounds kind of similar to that approach. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, not CDI or LDI, but I hesitate to mention those, but yeah. Concept, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Conceptually, yeah, we're looking to meet those future liabilities and reality is that the customer in this cohort isn't necessarily going to be too concerned what their primary issue is deliver that income to me with a high degree of certainty now we can do that in the short term we can never promise to do that in the long term because we just don't know we have 100 certainty what markets are going to do 
But if we can foresee that and give them fair warning, then I think they can then manage around that. People will find a way. And it, just behaviourally, right? Think about that again in terms of you spend pretty much, many people will spend whole of their life taking a paycheck, whatever that is. And then you manage your budget according to what you're earning. And that's just the way it should be in retirement as well, I think, anyway. So, yeah, that's my two pennies on the subject. What does the individual see? Because obviously they're not going to be kind of into the technicalities in the same way that we've just discussed. What do they get as communications? What, what do they hear? Yeah, so I think you keep it quite simple again. So you, most of the work is up front, but it's still setting them on a path where they can see where they're going without too much interaction if they don't want to give it. And then they're just played back. So this is your income stream over the next X years. And this is going to deliver this. And we review it every year. And if there are any red flags, we'll let you know. And that's kind of all what the customer needs to know. Now, yeah, so so far, I've kept that fairly simplistic in terms of keeping it pure investment journey. But there are probably other components to this, like annuities and equity release that you could bring in. And where does that journey actually start? Because we're sort of talking about pre-retirement, post-retirement. I'm just wondering, is there a solution, this whole kind of concept to and through, is this something you would only engage with them at the point that they want to retire? Or is this, can you design a solution that genuinely starts from the, the moment they join the pension scheme as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old? Now, I know that you would never set a, a strategy for 60 years because you've no idea what's going to happen, but... Is that conceptually where these strategies or solutions might get to, like to and through? Hmm. I think so. And the key word there, I think, is might get to. So I think we're probably on a bit of a journey where it might need some new creativity and ideas to try and set a new benchmark in retirement, which will inevitably be a bit disjointed for the time being. But ultimately, the optimal delivery of that will absolutely be something that integrates and obviously, the workplace provider is in the ideal position to set that path all the way through. And you're looking at, again, another way of describing it, perhaps, is an evolution of target date funds, where we, based on not someone's retirement age, but probably based on, and let's get super ambitious in terms of someone's longevity, individual longevity expectation. So we set their end goal to be what we believe their future life expectancy target will be. And the beauty of this as well is not only the income can be recalibrated, but you probably also need, you would need to recalibrate the life expectation as well, based upon how long in their living, their health, et cetera, as well. So it's quite dynamic in what it's doing, but it actually starts to also deliver you a kind of like a personalized solution for you, as opposed to, and I think that's another step up from the default is defaults have been served us really well, and they will do in retirement too, but they can evolve into more personalised journeys over time as well. So from an investment point of view, what do you think needs to change to make this possible? And what sort of exciting new ideas are you seeing in your role, I suppose? And having turned, have you gone poacher turned gamekeeper? I suppose you have. Probably have, yeah. Yeah, I did that once. <laughs> <laughs> Which gives me some insight. So what needs to change? I think actually nothing needs to change. What we need is just different thinking rather than anything structurally to make that happen. And again, what consultancy has taught me or being in this environment for so long 
is you have to be a little bit patient with this as well in that it will take time to permeate through. But just in terms of just unpacking that investment solution for a second, you can start to see shorter duration stuff, obviously, to pay the income in the early years. But the longer duration stuff becomes quite interesting in terms of what you might do with that. So an obvious example is equity growth assets. But just to try and bring those two initiatives together, we have retirement and private markets. And private markets potentially have a role to play in retirement too. If you're looking at suitable durations, obviously, maybe not less so where you need liquidity, the high premium liquidity, but over the longer term, absolutely so, and have some attributes there that could be really useful, I think, in this environment. I do uh, quite a bit of work with DB clients and certainly those that are targeting self-sufficiency almost map out a distribution of the income that's paid out over the next, let's call it 20 years, and how that's made up of the underlying investments that they have. So, you know, in the shorter, between zero and five years, most of it is coming from really, really liquid assets. But as time goes on, the private market assets, whether it be private credit, real estate debt, private equity, infrastructure debt, they then contribute income not only now, but they then start to mature as time goes on. So it almost kind of feels as if, you know, you could use private markets genuinely in that sense because of the long-dated nature of them and the predictability of the cash flows, which in retirement sounds incredibly important. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it also provides a very interesting use case for private markets where one of the challenges, as you both know, within private markets have a lot to offer, I think, DC schemes. But as we described at the top, we're in a place where we're at a kind of an ultra low cost position. So many schemes are looking at if they made a meaningful allocation to private markets, then the cost to the member is going to go up. And and for many, that's impalatable because of some of the commercial implications that might have on how they would be assessed. And it's not till we kind of have a fundamental reevaluation of minds in terms of what constitutes value that I think that starts to change. But you've got a kind of almost like a fresh field site in retirement where there could be a premium on delivering these type of solutions well. So that's kind of, that's interesting, I think, from an investment perspective. Just going back to the retirement living standards, obviously they came out, the new versions came out last week, I think it was, 20% increase in the amount needed. Now that's obviously just based on current inflation, et cetera, so it might settle back. But when you see figures like that, does that mean that we need to review the investment strategy design? Because in the absence of contributions going up, the investment strategy needs to work harder, do a lot of the heavy lifting. You know, It's one data point and it might revert back in 12 months' time. But I just wondered whether that is a consideration or is that a case of, well, we need to see whether this is permanently entrenched in what is needed or whether it is a short-term phenomenon. Uh, that's a good point. So you'd like to say yes, but what are the implications of searching out increased risk? Might mean you have to stay invested for longer, less certainty, so the probability of the outcome might fall. So there's probably quite a bit of number crunching to do on that to try and come to the right position or the income falls. So as I was describing before, I think customers, providing they're given notice, will manage according to the budget they're set. We're all having to do that today in some respects. We're having to redo our budgets because of inflation. This is another example of of that. So I think it's looking at those different components and how you best structure that. But potentially, John, yeah. And 
The other aspect to it, which I haven't touched on yet, which is worth just doing, which is annuities. So I don't see this standing as a pure investment solution. So for some investors, it might do. I think there's a lot to be said for a hybrid form of solution. Now, there's many ways you could cut that as well. So you could allocate to deferred annuities. You could make an allocation to annuities from the outset to provide guaranteed income. Or you could, as I think LCP described, it's kind of flex, fix and flex type of system in where you would actually revert to an annuity at, say, 75. You wouldn't purchase that until 75, but that might work. So all of those three are, are areas to consider, but there must be no doubt, I think, that annuities have a role to play, particularly in that latter path. The mortality dividend you see when you look at annuity rates, and that's what LCP did, is once you get over 75, the pure investment case becomes quite compelling, never mind all the other advantages. So you probably end up with kind of the annuities playing a greater role in later life, and that has a number of benefits. And you know, I was talking to someone who runs an annuity book for a large provider the other day, and the demand from individuals for annuities has just skyrocketed because obviously rates are higher. And so that peaks demand. And I'm not an economist, but I seriously doubt we're going to get back to a low inflation, low interest rate environment that we had over the last decade. Maybe we settle for something a little bit more in, uh, moderate. But if we did have interest rates at a point which enables annuitization for many people, that would probably have a lot of benefits for a population that hasn't been served by those for a long, long time. Could you see a pathway being created that is a deferred annuity? So I think at the moment, the pathway is, oh, I'm going to buy one in the next five years. But could you have one that says, I'm going to buy one in the next, at a point in 10 years or between 10 and 15 years? Or is that just getting a little bit too bespoke and might be quite difficult to actually create from an investment perspective? Yeah, it can be done. It would be more complex from an investment perspective. I also, and I've got no basis for testing this yet, how customers react to that in having that path kind of because one of the things we know is that aside from low rates customers have an aversion to annuities because they don't see the win they see the lose of the insurance policy that it is and if that's not presented to them in the right way you could see them not responding to that where a softer approach as, a, as an alternative is not the fix but you actually offer someone the alternative to convert to annuity at a later point. And maybe you keep nudging them at that point and say, actually, if you looked at this, you looked at this, you looked at this, rather than try and impose that on them. But there, there are many ways I think you could cut that. One final question, Louise, if that's okay. And pretty much throughout the podcast series that we've been doing, ESG has been discussed at length or as part of the conversation. I'm just wondering, in pre-retirement, the ESG integration is incredibly important and it's maybe one of the key selling points for some of the master trusts. I'm just wondering, in your experience, in the post-retirement world, is ESG such a big selling factor? Is that a hygiene factor? Or do you get a sense that people are somewhat ambivalent to it? That's a great question, isn't it? My instinct says that it should retain the ESG integration that we would have seen through the accumulation phase. Why wouldn't it do that? So that's probably my answer. There's an interesting one in terms of like behaviorally as well. I'd like to see some customer testing of those cohorts as well and the impact on that. But personally, I'd be a big advocate of retaining ESG integration to the system, I think. Yeah. 
final question from me. Lee, we've talked about the very wealthy people, the high end of the spectrum, being able to get great bespoke advice. And perhaps at the more basic end, you get guidance. I just wondered about the role of technology in maybe helping to bridge that gap and where you think technology helps and where you think perhaps it might be less helpful. Are you a believer in things like robo-advice, for example? In theory, yes. But, you know, it hasn't necessarily really worked because you're still navigating the same regulatory structure. Now, I would say what I've been describing earlier, that is absolutely enabled through digital so you're putting some we forget about those advice and those guidance lines and fundamentally what you're about here is less investment solution actually you are building a compelling digital ux that's going to enable the customer to understand what they've got simply and intuitively that's the essence of it if you don't solve that then all the good work will be to waste so that's the key fundamental of what I've been describing. But I think any guidance system or even anyone that, that starts to veer into, say, light advice, be it very bad advice and stuff, it's about world-class user experience first and foremost. Brilliant. Well, we've probably kept you chatting for long enough, Lee. It's been so great talking to you. Have we not asked you anything that you wanted to? That's always a great question. Is that what you do at interviews as well? Yeah, that's what I tend to do when I'm being a journalist is, yeah. (laughs) What have I forgotten to ask you? No, I don't think so. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, it's been lovely. Talking to you both as well. Great to catch up and yeah, just do it again sometime. We'll see if any additional questions for series two. Exactly. We can call it big thinking about retirement, which I feel is the sort of headline of this episode. We've done some big thinking today and it's great to sort of catch up on what you're talking about and thinking about in your new job. Well, not that new now, over a year. (laughs) So thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Lee. Thanks. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World New Opportunities.